You're welcome to grab a seat. Uh, for those of you that uh, are new or that I have not yet to meet, my name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the pastor here. Uh, and so, welcome everybody. How, how are you guys doing? Good. Uh, okay. I think you guys are doing quite well. Uh, uh, okay. So, we are continuing our series on Jonah, and we're in chapter 2. Uh, and the way I want to set this up is that uh, Jonah chapter 2 is a prayer. Uh, and in that prayer, uh, we, we, we kind of hear and see and feel and, and, and realize Jonah's true heart uh, in his relationship with God, in his relationship to others, that I think that we would be able to resonate with. But before we get started, I don't know about you, but that... That time of worship that we just had was incredible. Thank you to the team uh, that worked so hard to provide that leadership and to, to bring us to encounter the Holy Spirit. There was something about uh, the drums this morning. Uh, it, it was like I felt an extra sense of love there. Uh, the, the, the drummer's name is Mitch, and a uh, good friend of mine, he and his now fiance, L. They just got engaged. When did you guys get engaged? Last Thursday. Last Thursday uh, and, and she and Maria, they're getting a, going to the spa today. So don't judge them for that. Uh, but they took the Sunday morning to go to the spa. And I just found out uh, that Chris and Beth, if you don't know them, they're, I'm just going to embarrass you guys. They're sitting right there. They just got engaged when? Yesterday, okay, a lot of cool things that are happening. I hate that we have to talk about Jonah because that's like bad news, uh, but this is all good news and all in the provision and authority of Christ, uh, and, and I've gotten to know both of them as they lead their small group, and, and I'm so thankful uh, for both of you and to, to meet your family and to know that God has joined you together uh, to continue to love and to do ministry with one another. Uh, and so I'm excited to see that unfold as well. So, with that said, anyone else engaged just recently? Uh, okay, uh, so we are in Jonah. Uh, chapter 2, uh, we're moving a little slowly, but we're going to start speeding up. Uh, and the verses are just these. It's, it's the end of chapter 1 going into 2, and the word of the Lord says this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If you've been around the church for a long time, you at least know this part of the story, that Jonah runs away. We, we discussed it in the last couple chapters uh, where Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. God says, you must go to Nineveh and tell the Ninevites about my love, my grace, my forgiveness, uh, and my acceptance of them as they are. You need to go there and tell them uh, about me. And instead of doing that, Jonah says, no, thank you. And not only says no, but runs the exact opposite way to the end of the known world, uh, to Tarshish, which is the southern tip of, uh, of Spain, of the Mediterranean. And you can imagine how lavish and how comfortable that might have been. And so as, as Jonah is called to go to this life of being a missionary, to share God's love, he says, no, thank you. I'm going to Spain. And on his way there, uh, things didn't actually happen the way that Jonah wanted to. It says, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah's on the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called the Lord, 
and he answered me. So we're going to stop right there. Uh, but after that, he goes into a prayer about how God saved him. Because as, as Jonah was running away from God in God's mission and calling in his life, uh, God sent, remember God hurls. It's the Hebrew word hurls where God intentionally hurls a big storm in his life where it almost takes his life. And in the midst of that, a big fish, a whale, however you learned it, came and swallowed Jonah up for three days and three nights. And inside the belly of the whale, Jonah is praying and thanking God uh, for saving his life. So let me pray real quick and we'll just get to work. God, thank you so much. First of all, we thank you for love and grace that you have demonstrated We thank you that we get to live that out through our relationships, whether in our families, our friendships, marriages, engagements. And so God, we thank you for bringing our friends together to join their lives. May we as a community walk alongside them to encourage them, to support them, to love on them. And God, in the midst of that, may we learn from Jonah in the ways that he's also failed, just like all of us. And God, may we receive your redemption and your forgiveness and your healing today and forevermore. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. It seems as though the last several months, maybe last few years, uh, that our world, and when I say world, our society, our communities, have become a little bit more fractured. And unless you've been living under a rock, which I'm sure many of you haven't, and even if you were living under a rock, someone would lift up that rock and and tell us the division that is happening in our society and our world. It's become more volatile, it's become divisive, hateful, downright violent. Last week was evidence of that. And if we're being honest with ourselves, if we ask each other, what is the reason for all this hatred and violence and division and fraction in our society, most likely the answer it will always involve somebody else. If someone were to ask you, what is the problem of our society today, and everybody has an answer, and every one of those answers usually includes somebody else. And well, if only if this person believed this, only if that party believed this, only if this group of people would just change their minds, only if those people would give up this or gain that, then things will be better. The ultimate commonality we have is though we may be dis- in disagreement, we agree that it's the other person's fault. And it's no wonder that our world is so conflicted and fragmented from one another. And, and if anybody... Uh, has any conflict with other or, or, or disagreement, the danger is this, and I see this especially right now, just to name the elephant in the room, politically, I'm not here to talk about politics, but I do want to name the fact that politics has just completely uh, disrupted our community and, and ruined the unity we have with one another. I see it in not only churches, I see it in the, the, the faith in general, I, I, I see it in families. Uh, politics has just ruined Many relationships. And the problem is, in our conflict and disagreement, uh, our hatred and our violence and, and all that divisiveness towards the other, the danger of that is we can slowly become the very person we despise. 
I hope you hear what I'm saying because a lot of this is happening to us and we're not even cognizant of the dilemma that we put ourselves in. The hatred that we spew, the judgmentalism, the self-righteousness, so much that we implement on somebody else, before we know it, we are becoming that person that we so despise. I've done it in my relationships. I've done it when it comes to conflict and disagreements. And yes, it could be political. It could be a family problem. It could be your friendships. It could be in your marriage. It could be any conflict or disagreement. When we enter into those conflicts or disagreements, we can slowly, if we're not careful, if it's detached from love and grace and humility, we slowly decay and become the very people that we despise and speak against. Again, when we talk about today, when we're watching the news, and when we look at the political line, landscape, one side accusing the other of being hateful, mean, judgmental, wrong. They argue uh, this to the point that the accuser, the person accusing becomes the accused. In other words, it feels like though they may be on different sides of the political aisle, they're still doing the same thing. They may be driving in opposing directions, but their vehicles are, are identical. And you can justify this behavior of division, of hate, of violence, or whatever it is. You can justify it, and many do, by saying it's out of love. By saying it's to speak towards justice, and I do this to correct lies, to show a better way. But again, if your intent, I want you to listen carefully, if your intent to correct, to teach, to even discipline is detached from love, grace, and humility, Paul in the New Testament says says it the best. Whatever you say, even if it's out of love, will just sound like a loud gong. And 1 Corinthians says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul's teaching us this point that we can do all the right things and say all the right things and behave in the right way, but if it's not undergirded in love, grace, and humility, it's just a loud gong, and I have nothing. And it's this point that we say over and over again in many conflicts and arguments uh, when you try to correct, when you try to teach, when you try to convince, you may be right. You may be right, but oftentimes when it comes to conflicts and disagreements, being right doesn't always equate to being good and to being to, to relationships being salvaged. Being good doesn't always mean to win. Being right doesn't always mean you, you made the right decision. Sometimes uh, they are they don't go oftentimes they don't go hand in hand. And so even in the midst of our correction in the midst of our uh, wanting to convince or persuade the other side or to argue your point, if it's not out of love, then Paul says it's nothing but a loud gong. Theodore Roosevelt has this famous quote that a lot of people have re-quoted. It says, people, uh, when it comes to disagreements and arguments, people don't care how much 
you know until they know how much you care. I know it sounds a little cliche, and I've said this over and over before, but it's so true, especially right now in this day and age. People don't actually care all the information that you have. They don't care how much you know. They don't even care if that's actually right. They don't care if they know that it's not out of love and that they, that you don't care for them. And in this chapter, Jonah, I would say it couldn't have come at a better time because this is the world that we're living in today. And it's something that Jonah can resonate with. And it's something that we can resonate with, with Jonah. We all can be like Jonah. And this is actually bad news for us. Because if I had to rename this sermon series or Jonah, I would call it Jonah with the subtitle, Things Not to Do as a Prophet. Because that is exactly what Jonah is. Now, again, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, uh, you're familiar with a little bit of what's happening here as he gets swallowed by the whale. Here's what I would call a Sunday school understanding of Jonah. It's not wrong, but it's just something that either this might be new to you or we've all heard before. God asks him to evangelize in Nineveh. Jonah gets scared and runs away to the opposite side, uh, to Tarshish. God doesn't like that. God punishes him by uh, having him swallowed by, by a whale. The whale spits him out, and Jonah obeys God. This is kind of the story that we've heard, that we've learned in Sunday school when it comes to the story of Jonah. But, but this morning, I would like to offer perhaps a different narrative, something I believe is, obviously, I believe this, that is much more accurate to the text. And, and here in chapter 2, Uh, When Jonah has this prayer, things really get real. Like we really get to hear and see Jonah's heart through this prayer. So first of all, it's true that Jonah runs away. Jonah runs away. It's clear. Jonah, it says that he runs the opposite direction in chapter 1. But Jonah doesn't run away because he's actually scared of anything. Jonah doesn't run away because he's scared of the Ninevites. He runs away, and I want to offer this to you, because at best he was what we would call nowadays a nationalist. Jonah was a nationalist. At worst, he was a prejudice, he was racist against the Ninevites. And so I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but as we read chapter 3 and 4, the whole idea is that Jonah is, is not scared, but he runs away because he does not want the Ninevites to experience the love and the grace and the compassion that God has for Israel. You see, it's not that Jonah was scared. He didn't want the, the bad people, those people, to experience the same kind of love that he did. And so, again, spoiler alert, when you get to the next chapter, when God finally, you know, brings love and compassion and forgiveness to Ninevites, Jonah's response wasn't joy, it wasn't gladness. He, I imagine Jonah kind of crossing his arms saying, God, I told you. Why did you have me go to Nineveh and tell them about your love? I told you they would repent. I told you that they would love you back. And now look what happened. And so, though that we may have been convinced that Jonah was just this scared person running away, though he may have been afraid, but I would agree with many other scholars that his primary reason of running away was his hate, was his 
prejudice, his ignorance, his racism. See, Israel thought of the Ninevites that they were degenerate, inferior class of people. And when God's messages go to those very people that have oppressed you for many years and go to them and tell them that God loves them, of course Jonah's going to say, no, thank you. And he runs away, not out of fear, but out of spite. He runs away. And you can see in that context why he would be resistant. When I was in seminary, I had a professor uh, who happened to be Korean-American, as I am Korean-American. Uh, and he was describing the book of Jonah in this light. He, he compared it to World War II, where he would say, what God was asking Jonah to do, you have to imagine during the war to my Korean great-great-great-grandparents saying, I want you to go to Japan, the oppressors of Korea at the time, the people that colonized Korea at the time, in mean and harsh and very violent and hateful ways, And it's like saying to go to that person in Korea during that time to tell them to go to Japan and say, hey, guess what, everybody? God loves you. God forgives you. God wants you to repent. Will you do that? Of course not. Of course, that would be very difficult to do. So no wonder Jonah would run away. That helped me understand perhaps Jonah's heart, that we actually have a similar heart in many cases. So it's true that Jonah runs away, but it wasn't out of fear, it was out of spite. It's true that Jonah gets eaten by a fish, but it's not out of God's anger, it's actually out of God's love. In spite of Jonah running away, God doesn't punish, but God loves Jonah. Now here's how this unfolds. Remember in chapter 1, where Jonah runs away, God sends a storm. And in the middle of a storm, remember it's the word of a hurricane, not just a windy day, but it was like a hurricane where even the sailors thought they were going to die. They were throwing luggage out because they were panicking of their death. And, and so what they did was they threw Jonah out of the boat uh, to you know, save themselves, to, to, you know, to make God happy or whatever it is. They threw Jonah out and Jonah is left in hurricane-like waters only to perish, only to die. And what happens in the midst of his almost death? It's a miracle. A fish comes up and swallows Jonah so Jonah doesn't die. You understand, do you understand what I'm saying? The fish was actually a gift from God so Jonah didn't die. It was almost God's humorous way of sending a life jacket. Okay, so Jonah's dying, he's drowning, you know, he doesn't have that much time left, and instead of God throwing him a, a life jacket or, or one of those in tubes or whatever it is, God sends a whale to swallow him up to keep him alive. The big fish that swallowed him wasn't out of God's anger, but it was out of God's love. He was on the verge of drowning to death from hurricane-like waters, and God sends him a life jacket in the form of a whale. This was a testimony of God's love, mercy, and compassion. That even at Jonah's worst, God's love is still evident and real in his life. This is good news for all of us. 
This is good news for all of us, even in the midst of our own sinfulness, the way that we hurt others, the, the, the toxic decisions that we make that affect our own selves and the people around us, even in the midst of our lives at being at the worst, God loves us best and most. And lastly, we see that it's true that Jonah does worship God. But if you look carefully and read these verses, this prayer, he's simply repeating the Psalms that as any good Israelite have memorized. He knows exactly what to say at exactly the right time. He's got the head knowledge of what it means to follow after Yahweh by memorizing these Psalms and prayers. He knows exactly what to do in times of trouble and when good things happen. He knows exactly what to say and how to thank God. But it almost sounds like He's just going through the motions. And many, many of us have just gone through the motions. Because if you listen carefully, uh, it, it sounds great, the thanksgiving and the prayer of God saving him from drowning. But in verse 8 and 9, it says this. It says, but those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Doesn't that sound great? Jonah acknowledges that even in the midst of his sinfulness, in the midst of him being disobedient and unfaithful and running away from God, that there's a storm that he was about to die. And for him, if we go back to chapter 1, he says, just kill me because I know what I've done. It's not like he doesn't know what he's done. He knows what he's done. And yet in the midst of that, God saves him with the whale, the fish, whatever, however you have learned it. And he says, thank you, God, so much. Thank you that you've loved me. And it's all going great because he's acknowledging what God does until we get to verse 8. And he says, essentially, thank you that I'm not like those sailors, those other guys that worship vain idols. I know, right? Like you are so upset with them. I know that what they're doing is wrong. I'm so thankful that I'm not like them, that as they worship false idols, I love you. As they do the things that are against your will, as they do things that are unfaithful to you and worship other gods, remember we talked about uh, monotheism versus monolatrism. They believed in several different gods. And what Jonah is saying, oh man, God, I'm so glad I'm not like these people, worshiping all the false gods. Man, God, you know that I'm with you. God, you know that I love you. I'm not anything like these people. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. See, he is worshiping God. But worshiping in a way, if you notice, that calls out those people. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those that worship worthless idols and turn your love away. Thank you, I'm not like those people. And the irony here is so, I would say for lack of a better word, it's humorous. Because if you see what's happening, Jonah is the one that sinned against God. Jonah is the one who's supposed to be the most religious, the most committed to Yahweh, is the one that runs away from God, disobeys God, 
And, and remember when he's in the boat and the storm is coming, while the other people are praying, uh, first they pray to their own God, then they pray to Yahweh, then they go to Jonah and say, do something, have your God. There's a sense of conversion or there's a sense of faith where the sailors who were uh, worship idlers go to Jonah and say, Jonah, pray to your God. Essentially, I believe that your God can do something. Why are you, and get this, why are you asleep? And so get this irony that Jonah's the one that sinned. The people that were uh, the, the most irreligious, the most pagan idol worshipers are the one going to God. And Jonah in his just blindsided narcissism says, God, take a look at these guys. I mean, you can understand some of the humor that the author is saying. Even though Jonah is the one that sinned, Jonah goes to God and says, can you believe those guys? Can you believe that they're worshiping, you know, false idols? And, and you, you can imagine God saying, are you kidding me right now? Like, you are the problem. Like, we think that the sailors are the problem, the false idols are the problem. We think all this are the problem. And Jonah is so blindsided and so oblivious from his narcissism, he's completely blind to the fact that he is and was the problem. It was his sinfulness and his betrayal of God of why the storm even came in the first place, why he almost died, why the sailors, we don't know what happened to the sailors. Perhaps they did die or not die, we don't know. But the trouble is because of Jonah, and Jonah goes to God and has the audacity to say, well, look at those people. Are you kidding me? And the whole satire of this, Jonah is saying, or God is saying, Jonah, you are, you, you're the problem. And Jonah completely misses it. And it brings me back to the division and the hatefulness and the disunity we see today in our lives. Oftentimes, we're so blinded by our own narcissism. God, can you believe what they believe? God, can you believe that they're acting in this way? God, can you believe that that church does this? Can you believe that they vote like this? Can you believe that that person voted for him or that person voted for her? God, can you believe that? That is the problem with the world. And I believe God is like, well, what about you? What about me? Prentice, what about me? Jonah teaches us exactly what not to be. And it's that, this egotistical narcissist person who has this tendency to just blame other people because of his ignorance and his prejudice and his reason for Jonah, that's everyone else's fault but his own. And for us, who are those people? See, for Jonah, it was those people who, in verse 8, it says, those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. That's who Jonah decided to, to be divided against. Those are the people that Jonah decided to blame. Those are the people that Jonah saw as the problem of what was happening to his life during that time. And for many of us, we have those people in our lives. Who are those people? Who are the Ninevites to you? Maybe it's like Jonah, someone from a different cultural or ethnic background. That is because of those people that things aren't good. 
Maybe it's someone from different socioeconomics, someone from different gender, different political party. And if I can name the, the elephant in the room, maybe it's people who identify as LGBTQ or their allies. And, and again, in any of these, Republican, liberal, anything libertarian, anything in between, I'm not saying here's what you should believe, here's what you should do. What I'm saying is oftentimes we're so quick to judge we're so quick to cast down our judgment, even though that's God's job, and we sit back and say, well, we're great, we're good, but what about but those people? And if I can be so bold to say it's time for us to look at our own lives instead of casting so much judgment on others. I mean, that was a problem of Jonah. So we look at this parable, parable that Jesus was teaching in Luke chapter 18. And it's a story similar to Jonah, but God gives a clue of what it looks like to do it right. The parable goes like this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, the Pharisees, the religious people, that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Jesus tells a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying, thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector that was standing right beside him. And he gives off this resume. Well, here's what I do so well, God. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to the heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, out of shame, out of guilt, out of his own understanding, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You have to understand, during this day, a tax collector was really looked down upon. There were people that cheated people out of their money, people that were unfair. He acknowledged his own sin, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified. This man, rather than the other, the, rather than the religious person, the sinner, the one that everyone despised. That is the person that is leaving the mountain justified by me, is what God says, not the religious one. For all who exalt themselves will be humble, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. I mean, this was a very subversive and very offensive to the Jewish audience. God didn't justify the religious person. God justifies the religious person's enemy, the tax collector. There's, we talked about Jonah being, you know, this, this whole satirical way of writing that even in the book of Jonah, that the good people are actually the bad people, and the bad people are actually the good people, and Jesus does the same thing, where the person that's the most religious should be the most holy, it should be the most repentful, and yet that person isn't. In fact, he's the opposite. And the person, the hero of the story, is actually the one that everyone despises. The one that uh, people would call those people, that person as the bad person, is the very person that God says he justifies. And so, ironically enough, the things that we learn from this story, from, from even this pericope, is not from the quote-unquote the religious people, but it's from the tax collector. 
We can learn a lot from the tax collector's attitude, his perspective on himself, on God and others. And let me just offer three things real quick. The first thing that we can learn from this tax collector is that God created in God's own image. God created all things, all the way from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God created all things, all people, this entire universe. God created in God's own image. It's this Hebrew understanding called Salem Elohim. It literally means the image of God. In Latin, this is probably something we've been more familiar with, is this word imago Dei. That all of humanity, every single one of us, no matter how you voted, no matter you know, what you believe, no matter what your religion is, whether you believe in God or not, believe it or not, you and I, all of us, we all possess the imago Dei, Salim Elohim. We have the image of God. We bear the image of God because God created us in God's own image. Everybody possesses the imago day. And what this looks like practically, even in our story, is that in both of these stories, that while Jonah and the Pharisee had to focus on everyone else's wrongdoing while lifting up his own achievements and resume and merits, the tax collector didn't have to put anyone down to raise himself up. Jonah did this. What about those people? The Pharisee, I thank you, I'm not like that person. They both had to tear down other people, tear down other people's own being created in God's own image to only lift themselves up. This tax collector did something completely different. This tax collector focused on his own unfaithfulness, his own brokenness, and desperately, desperately pleaded for God's mercy. When we view other people with the imago Dei, that, I promise you, that changes everything. It doesn't matter what kind of barrier you have in between one another. It doesn't matter how much disagreement you have. It doesn't matter how much you hate that person. It doesn't matter how much you disagree with that person. It doesn't matter how much you think that how wrong that person is or where that person is going after they die. If you change that perspective and see them with Salem Elohim, with the Imago Dei, that changes everything in that relationships, and those barriers come down. Secondly, the image of God compels us to confess. The Imago Dei compels us to confess. When we see other people with the Imago Dei, it compels us to confess, who have we judged? Who have you judged? Who have I judged? In what ways have I been self-righteous towards the other that actually possesses the Imago Dei just like me? How have we become the very people that we despise? And is there a chance? Is there a chance, even a slight chance, that the person that we are quote-unquote against disagree with could perchance be also created in the image of God like me, like us? And the answer is yes. 
It's true. The Imago Dei will always change our minds. And so as we shift into viewing people as the other person or those people, what if we shifted our mentality that first and foremost is that they too were created in the image of God that compels us to say, I confess I've judged you. I confess I've been self-righteous. I confess I'm the one that contributes to the problem in this relationship, whatever that might be. The image of God will reveal to us what we need to confess. And lastly, confession becomes a pathway towards repentance. Because a prerequisite for any, any authentic confession is Humility. In other words, in order for us to repent, we must have an honest self-appraisal. This is the hardest thing for us to do, to have an honest self-appraisal. This tax collector, be merciful upon me, a sinner. This tax collector confesses with humility that he is a sinner. God, have mercy on me. This whole idea of of humility and confession is so difficult in the church. We call it a spiritual discipline, that we need to train ourselves. We need to practice this. While Jonah's prayer, you see in chapter 2, was all about himself, thanksgiving for how awesome he is, and because of that, how God saved his life. The reality is there's no evidence in the entirety of Jonah that Jonah was actually repentful. Jonah does not say sorry. Jonah does not say forgive me. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the book of Jonah does he do that. Because he lacked humility. He focused on the other instead of his own sinful nature, his own brokenness, and his own faithfulness. And to top it all off, the Ninevites may have been called the wicked city, the wicked people, but here's the point of the author, is that Nineveh might be the wicked city, but Jonah, you're worse off. But Jonah, you are worse than the wicked city because of your attitude, because of your unrepentant heart, because you view the Ninevites as those people that you are against and you don't look it upon yourself to see in what ways you, Jonah, might be contributing to the problem. See, the book of Jonah is brilliant. It helps put a mirror to our own selves, to our own faces. For Jonah, his sin was racism, prejudice, ethnocentrism, a belief that his people himself were better than those other people. What about for you? Who are the other people in your lives? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's someone that you have just have never had the opportunity or desire to forgive or to reach out and ask for forgiveness. And we're so quick to say, well, it's that person's fault. They should say sorry to me. That might be true. 
Or, or, of course, I can't be friends with that person, or I can't be in community and table fellowship with that person because they believe in the different things politically and, and, and relationally and all these different things. Of course, I cannot be friends with them because they're wrong, right? At the end of the day, what we're saying is they're wrong and I'm right. But what if God is putting a mirror to our face and saying, what if there's things that we need to do to have an honest look at our own self with humility that will cause us to confess and that confession will cause us to repent, to literally turn from our ways. Now this is not a sermon on ways that we should just be overwhelmed with our own self-shame. This is not about beating ourselves up Believe it or not, it's actually a message of hope. Saying that even in our sinful nature of ignorance, of hatred of others, of lack of forgiveness, of ignorance, of racism, of judgmentalism, of self-righteousness, that in the midst of that, that God still offers love. God reminds us that we too were created in God's own image and wants us to confess and repent that even in the midst of our own brokenness of being in the water almost to death, that God will still come and save us with the fish and saying, I did this because I love you. But you can't stay the same. You can't stay the same. And so as we go into this week, I leave you with just a few practices that might help us to not just forget about this on the Sunday morning, but, but transform us during the week. Number one, who are those people in your life? Who are those people that Jonah is so against that he doesn't even want them to experience God's love, and it's those people's faults that all these bad things are happening? Do you have those people in your life? Who are they? Secondly, in what ways are you contributing to the problem? Whatever conflict, whatever disagreement, whatever brokenness you have in a relationship, what is our part? What is your part? What is my part in that? And lastly, those people, will you pray for them? It's clear that Jesus says, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I tell you, this is what Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. During this week, will you identify those people for you? Will you pray for them? And I don't know what that prayer looks like. And I hope it doesn't uh, emulate the prayer of the Pharisee. God, I pray for this person. I thank you that I'm not like that person. God, they do all these things bad and all these things wrong. That's not the prayer I'm talking about. I'm talking about, God, will you, will you help me love them? Will you protect them? Will you bring gladness to their life? Will you bring healing to that person? Will you forgive that person? Will you bring your grace and joy and abundance to that person? That's the same prayer that God is asking Jonah to do. Will you go into Nineveh and will you pray that for them? Pray that over them, love them. Will you do that? Jonah said no and ran the other way. Will you say yes? Who are those people? 
So I'm going to give us a time to just reflect on these questions. I'm going to invite the, the worship team back up as they lead us into song, into music, in a time to, to pray, to sing, to reflect, whatever that is. I'm going to invite the, uh, the communion service forward as well. And as we sing, the table is open for all of us. That is, you receive the bread. May you see it as a symbol of God's love, his body that was broken for you. Jesus says, take this in remembrance of me. Then Jesus says, take this cup. This is the blood that was spilled for you. Receive this in remembrance of me. As we take the elements, the bread, the juice, you dip that in there. We say, thank you, God, for your life, death, and resurrection. May we emulate that humility that you as God became human for our sake. To God, in the midst of a broken and desperate world of disunity, may this bread and this juice reflect the humility that you call us all towards and that your blood and body was broken for all of us. It is finished. There are no those people or you people. We are all created in the image of God. May we remember that as we partake, as we sing, as we sit still, as we pray. Pray with me as we end. God, thank you so much for your love, your compassion, your life, your death, and your resurrection. We believe in you. We believe in your promises, and we believe that you want that for all people. So God, help us to be a conduit, a messenger of your love. Not out of our own self-righteousness. May we not pick and choose who we get to love and serve. But may we go as we're called to do. We thank you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's continue with 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 amen.